0: Hello, Exorcist Files listeners. Okay, so we know a lot of you struggle with sleep issues. And no, not just because you're listening to our show before bed. I myself actually have struggled with sleep a ton since starting the show, waking up in the middle of the night for seemingly no reason. If that sounds like you, then you should try Sleepy Body Lotion by H. Sheep Organics. It's an all-natural organic magnesium lotion Made from a unique form of deep sea magnesium that is very pure and can be absorbed directly through the skin. You just apply some to your back, arms, or legs, and it will help you get a deep, restful night's sleep. Just head over to eightsheep.com slash xfiles and use our promo code XFILES for 10% off. Again, that's 8Sheep.com slash X Files for 10% off. And seriously, stop listening to this show right before bed. Hello friends, welcome to The Exorcist Files. This is another little bonus episode for your listening and educational enjoyment. For those that want more of Father's teaching and less drama, we were listening, and these episodes, they're just for you. And for those who can't get enough of the reenactments, fear not, by the pricking of Chandler's thumbs, a three-part episode this way comes. Today, we are going to do an even deeper dive into relics, saints, exorcism preparations, demonic hierarchies, and more. So, let's jump in. Now, you will remember, Father is the Relic Guy. The ministry
1: for which I am best known is called Treasures of the Church. I bring a very large Vatican exhibit of relics of the saints to churches, schools, and prisons worldwide. That ministry is immensely popular, and it usually books several years in advance. It's popular not just because the objects are so rare, but because it is very much a healing ministry. I've directed the ministry for over 20 years, and in that time period, there have been thousands of claims of healing, and
0: some of the healings have happened right in front of me. Now, of course, some would argue... Any relic is better than no relic, but Father Martin's has found that certain ones are especially effective against demons when the victim and the saint share a particular connection, perhaps from a shared experience or tribulation.
1: I had a possession case of someone who was born into a satanic cult. This poor victim was possessed not because anything that she had done herself, but because her very parents consecrated her to evil from the time she was in the womb. She was tortured horrifically by her parents and by the other cult members in order to make of her an offering to demons. So this victim had, side by side with this demonic affliction, an incredible amount of post-traumatic stress disorder. And so in one of the sessions, I brought with me a hair of the founder of my religious community, the Companions of the Cross, founded in 1985 by Father Bob Bedard. Father Bob was a holy person. I have no doubt that he is a saint. He is not yet formally canonized. But the process of canonization in the Catholic Church adds nothing to somebody's holiness. It's merely the formal recognition of holiness. And during his life one time, while he was alive, I was talking with him and on the rim of his glasses, there was a hair, a loose hair of his had fallen on the rim. And so I say, hey, Father Bob, just you got a hair here on your glass. Let me just get rid of it for you. So I took it from him and pretended to kind of toss it onto the floor. But I kept my fingers pressing on it because I wanted to keep this as a relic of his. So I dug out this hair of Father Bob's, and goodness, the demons just howled. It caused an incredible amount of torment to them. The first one screamed out, get him off of me, get him off of me. And he would say over and over again, I hate you. I hate you, as he was staring at this hair. Father Bob's relic had such a profound effect because he himself was a victim of post-traumatic stress disorder. In addition to being a priest, he was a teacher in a Catholic high school run by the Archdiocese of Ottawa in Canada. And in the early 1970s, there was a school shooting in his classroom. There were students that were shot in front of Father Bob. The trauma of that, it afflicted him acutely. He had great trouble sleeping and he never talked about it. You could talk to Father Bob about anything, but we just knew not to go there. And so to this person here, whose life had been so characterized by trauma, his
0: relic was profoundly effective as a help to that person. And speaking of profound relics, let's turn the page to a treasure of fathers that is shrouded in mystery.
1: Years ago, I was given a folded paper envelope, very small, maybe one inch by three inches, that encased within it
0: was an alleged thread from the Shroud of Turin. The Shroud of Turin, many believe, is the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ, within which he was wrapped when he rose from the tomb. It is referred to as the Shroud of Turin because it is kept in the Cathedral of Turin in Italy.
1: It's impossible to know through scientific means whether this is the actual burial cloth of Jesus. All science can do is corroborate that there's a probability that this could be the cloth. I personally believe that that cloth is the actual burial cloth of Jesus, but I believe so because of the evidence. And I know one of the researchers, Dr. John Jackson, who headed the Shroud of Turin research project in the 1970s for NASA. I've read his research and I'm convinced by what he's discovered. So I received this alleged fragment of the Shroud of Turin. And there are very few because the Shroud of Turin has not been divided like other relics have been. But it was a long thread. It was about two inches long. And in terms of the Shroud of Turin, this is a pretty large relic. So I brought it to Dr. Jackson, and even just eyeballing it, I could tell that his eyes lit up. And so I left it with him for several weeks. And he wrote a report on it, which his conclusion is that, yes, this is a relic of the Shroud of Turin. So I took this relic with me to an exorcism. And this person had an immensely strong demon, which I had battled for years, who identified himself as Satan. Is this the Satan? I don't know. But he is easily the strongest demon that I've ever encountered. So when I pulled out this relic of the Shroud of Turin and I placed it up against the back of the demon, the demon brought his knees together and feet together together. Brought his right wrist over his left wrist and exhibited the same position of the man in the shroud as if the demon was compelled to mimic the position of our Lord's body in the tomb prior to the resurrection. The demon stopped all resistance and began to whimper, a quiet whimper. It had now encountered something that was controlling it. In every manner. The Shroud of Turin, it's a relic that is just so rare that I was skeptical that it was authentic. But that skepticism is now non existent completely. The testimony of the demons bodes to the holiness of this relic and to its authenticity.
0: A powerful theme throughout Father Martin's ministry is the Christian ideal of forgiveness. Many times, Father will pack up his relics and take them on tour to somewhere you might not expect.
1: I brought them to many different prisons because prisoners need ministry. It's part and parcel with Christian theology that a person is more important than his behavior. Forgiveness is something that God grants and that he demands of his followers, and no one can do something so heinous that he is beyond God's forgiveness. Every person, even a convicted murderer, convicted rapist, is God's creation and was created in God's likeness. Because of that, the Christian community reaches out to inmates and extends the Christian message of salvation and love. It's only logical that I would bring this Vatican exhibit
0: into prisons and have done so far and wide. While we're on the topic of forgiveness, the story of this next relic and saint is absolutely astounding.
1: One of the saints that I speak about and for whom I am the English-language biographer is St. Maria Goretti. And St. Maria Goretti was an 11-year-old girl who died in 1902. Her father had died two years prior. Her mother, Assunta Goretti, was a widow who had six children in her care. They were poor sharecroppers, so they didn't own any land. They were permitted to occupy an old farmhouse and to work fields that were owned by a wealthy landowner in exchange for a certain quota of crops. But when Maria's father died, that put the contract they had with the landowner in jeopardy. They had to meet the demands of that contract or they would be thrown off the property. The only way that could be done would be if Maria's mother took her husband's place working the fields, and if Maria, at her young age, would take over her mother's place in the home, doing all the cooking, cleaning, and the raising of her five brothers and sisters. Maria took to her new responsibilities with great diligence. She wanted nothing more than to alleviate the suffering her mother was experiencing trying to keep up with the demands of that farm. At this time, something else began to occur. Her next-door neighbor, a 20-year-old man named Alessandro Serenelli, had taken an impure liking to her and propositioned her several times, and she always resisted him and, and, in fact, was afraid of him because he threatened her that unless she acquiesced to his demands that he would kill her. One day he knew that she was home alone, He dragged her into the house from the front stoop and held up a sharpened file. He threatened her and said, unless you do what I want you to do, I will kill you. Well, she refused. And he stabbed her 14 times. By the time Maria was found, she already had a fever. And by the time she was taken to the hospital, the fever, combined with the loss of blood, put her in a state of dehydration. She begged the doctors for water, but the doctors wouldn't give her any water because whatever she would swallow would come out her perforated intestines and would induce peritonitis. The local priest who had been called into the hospital, he asked her, Maria, our Lord from the cross also begged for water, but no one gave him any. Will you also offer up your thirst for sinners? And she replied, yes, father, I will. And she never asked for anything again. Maria's heart was grazed in the attack by the sharpened file, but also Maria had lost half of her blood. And the doctors thought if we give her anesthetic, that would induce cardiac arrest. So they performed surgery in which they enlarged every one of Maria's wounds so that they could suture internally to try to stop the bleeding they didn't give Maria any anesthetic. Maria felt every movement of the surgeon's blade and hands. Throughout that surgery, Maria never complained once. She offered everything up for the salvation of sinners. Unfortunately, the internal bleeding continued, and so it was clear Maria wouldn't survive. Before she died, she said these words, I forgive Alessandro Serenelli
0: And I want him with me in heaven forever. And on that note, I hope you will forgive us for taking a short commercial break. We'll be right back. Hello, Exorcist Files listeners. If you're not having good ranchers deliver meat straight to your door, I don't know why you're resisting. Okay, Some real talk. This company is actually pretty cool. Their founder, Ben, is actually a former worship pastor, and he felt God called him to start a meat company. And he had literally no experience in food. He just stepped out in faith, trying to be obedient. And a year later, they were absolutely crushing it, providing sustainable, all natural products sourced only from American farms and ranchers. I mean, the fruit speaks for itself, except they don't sell fruit, they sell amazing, high quality meat. That you can actually taste the difference, and if you want some seafood for Lent, just saying they do great seafood. Go to goodranchers.com and use promo code XFiles. That's E X Files, XFiles for a delicious discount, ten percent off. Seriously, go check it out. Welcome back to The Exorcist Files, bonus episode, part two. When we left off, Maria, in her final moments on earth, offered the ultimate gift to her assailant, forgiveness. But her story is far from over.
1: When Maria died, there was no one left able to take her place, and her mother couldn't look after the responsibilities of the farm and meet the needs of her family. So the same week that Maria Garetti died in July of 1902, her mother had to give up all five remaining children to adoption. She never even got to go to Maria's funeral because it was held on one of the last days that she had with her remaining children. Alessandro Cirinelli destroyed her family. Alessandro, for his part, he was taken to trial at which he pleaded innocence. He said he was. Defending himself from the attack of Maria, which of course is absurd. So he was sentenced to 30 years in prison. And Alessandro Serenelli went to prison, the most angry man on earth. In fact, he was so filled with anger, he would always cause violence when he was permitted to be around anyone else. So he was placed in solitary confinement and remained in solitude for several years. He blamed Maria for everything. And kept repeating over and over again how, if she had just done what he wanted her to do, none of this would have happened. Until one night, Maria appeared to him. She appeared in a garden picking 14 white lily flowers, and she handed those flowers to him one by one. The number 14 is significant because it was 14 times that he had stabbed her. So, what Maria is saying with this gesture is, I forgive you. That act of love filled Alessandro Serenelli with the Holy Spirit, and he immediately became contrite for what he had done to that little girl. He requested the local bishop and requested the sacrament of confession, within which he confessed having murdered her. Shortly after that occasion, there was a construction worker digging at the base of a building in Rome. And from the top of the building, a large stone block fell onto his foot, damaging it so badly, shattering every bone within it, nothing could be done to repair it. So all they could do was prepare the man for an amputation the following morning. But his wife, who had been called to the hospital, placed a prayer card within his bandaging. This Was a prayer card having the image of Maria Goretti on one side and a prayer asking God to grant her canonization as a saint on the other. Well, the next morning, they placed the man on top of the operating table, but when they unwrapped his bandaging, there was absolutely nothing wrong with his foot. There were no broken bones, no bruising, there was not a scratch on that man's foot. All because Maria chose to forgive and because she made that choice Alessandro Serenelli having received the mercy of God through the forgiveness of Maria Garetti began to live a holy life himself even within prison he began to read the bible he developed a prayer life he would evangelize the other inmates so he was released 3 years early because his person had completely changed one of the first things he did upon his release was seek out the mother of Maria Goretti. 27 years after the murder, she hears a knock on her door. She opens the door, and there she is staring face to face with the man that had brought so much misery upon her. He asked her, Asunta, do you know who I am? She replied, yes, I know who you are. He asked her, do you forgive me? She replied, Alessandro, God has forgiven you. Maria has forgiven you. How can I not forgive you? She accepted him as her own son, and she adopted him. From that moment forward, Assunta Garetti always referred to him as my son. Alessandro Serenelli went on to live a very holy life himself. In fact, I believe he too one day will be canonized a saint. And so the Vatican asked me, in 2015, to bring the body of St. Maria Goretti to America on what was called the Pilgrimage of Mercy. And it visited 54 different cities. And at each of the locations, I gave every pilgrim that came to venerate the saint a holy card of St. Maria, which I had touched directly to her relics. But every pilgrim also got a holy card I made of Alessandro Serenelli, that I had touched to a letter that he hand wrote. Those prayer cards, many miracles have been brought about through their use. One of the things I like to do is bring those prayer cards to an exorcism. And I remember, in fact, one case where there was a demon
0: who identified himself as murdered. Now, this is a different murder from the demon mentioned in episode five. And you might remember Father noting that murder is one of the more common names chosen by demonic entities.
1: Well, Alessandro Serenelli was a murderer, but became repentant. And so immediately I went and grabbed the prayer cards, and I placed them up against the back of the victim, and poof, the demon immediately departed. In fact, it was so quick that I didn't believe the demon was actually gone. I thought he was just hiding. So I commanded the demon to come forward, and nothing happened. Finally, at a certain point, I was compelled to acknowledge that these holy cards of Alessandro Serenelli brought about that exorcism. Demons often voice their hatred of Alessandro Serenelli. He's the failed demonic project who had been a murderer, lived a wretched life, and who had taken away the life of this 11-year-old little girl, but then who received her forgiveness, made his peace with God, then lived a very holy life. This is the triumph of Christian forgiveness and of Christian reconciliation with
0: God. So, Father believes that Alessandro Serenelli will one day become canonized. But how exactly does that process work? How does one become a saint? Asking for a friend, of course. First
1: of all, only the Pope has the power to make anyone a saint. But there's a very formal process by which someone is canonized, declared a saint. The church has set a certain number of criteria that have to be present in order for one to even be considered a saint. There has to be a reputation for holiness that survives the death of the individual, that people are convinced that this person is available as an intercessor. There's an investigation in the life of that individual to see whether this person lived virtue to a heroic degree, that this person lived goodness to a degree that is absolutely exemplary. So if the church is satisfied that is present, then for a canonization to come about, there has to be a miracle done through something miraculous coming about after the saintly person is invoked in prayer.
0: And if we want to get into technicalities, only one miracle is needed in the case of a martyr, because the martyrdom itself is considered one miracle. For a candidate who lived heroic virtue but died of natural causes, there needs to be two miracles. All right, I think that's enough saint and relic talk for one day. Let's get back into the room where Father confronts our age-old enemy. Now, I've always wondered, what goes into preparing for an exorcism? What are the roles? How many people? In a real-life exorcism, you certainly
1: want a note-taker, somebody who can write or type very quickly. Writing is always preferable to typing. It just seems easier for the devil to manipulate electronic means than old-fashioned pen and paper. So you want a secretary. You want a physician, if at all possible. Ideally a doctor, at least a nurse, because you want somebody trained in medicine that can be an aid to the victim or anyone else in the room for that matter, and somebody who has some experience with the mental health situation of the victim, because there often is a mental health problem that has developed either because of the devil or, or was there. You want somebody who can be an advocate for needs that other people and the exorcist aren't necessarily aware of.
0: I also wanted to know, all things being equal, what does a well-run exorcism actually look like? At least in an exorcism the way I do them, the victim
1: is sitting in a chair, a very strong chair. The best thing is a heavy oak chair. You have the victim sitting at a table. Then you have typically three holders, one on each of the victim's arms The third holder is typically at the victim's feet. You want the legs restrained because that is able to prevent a lot of maneuvering that the demon is going to attempt to engage in. You need strong, robust men to be holders. If your exorcism lasts three hours, four hours, those holders have to hold out for that time. It's an exhausting job. You can, and you ought to, if possible, have substitutes on hand, but that's not always possible. And an important thing to mention is this kind of restraining, prior to the exorcism, a victim is made aware of it. And prior to the state of possession kicking in, which typically happens when the exorcist begins praying, they give permission to be mildly restrained. I mean, an exorcist never engages in prayers to a victim against his or her will. We don't kidnap people that we think are possessed. At the very least, they have to desire to be free of the devil, because otherwise it's an absolute moot point. But they are made aware that, hey, look, for your safety and for everyone else's, your movement is going to be somewhat restrained as long as a demon is present and exhibits himself.
0: Sometime after the interview, Father also revealed to me that even though it poses risk to him and his assistant's physical well-being, he never ties the victim down. This is because if, God forbid, there was ever a time he needed to defend himself in a court of law or public opinion, he could avoid accusations of unlawful imprisonment. This is also a major reason why exorcisms are not conducted in a victim's bedroom, and there must be multiple witnesses present at all times, so that there is never even a suggestion of impropriety. The same is true with compensation. People routinely try and offer things to father as a thank you, and he always (laughs) declines. The church wants there to be no suggestion of impurity or quid pro quo. Liberation is a gift from God's church. Now, moving on. We know from psychological research that multitasking isn't great for your brain. But when it comes to exorcisms, turns out it's crucial.
1: As an exorcist, you're working to liberate the victim. You are interrogating the demons and you're issuing commands to them. You are praying performing the rite of exorcism or reciting other prayers intended to weaken the demonic hold. You're also attentive to the victim's medical needs. It can happen that demons open a wound or they cause some kind of bleeding on the body of the victim, and that is always going to require medical attention. You're also listening to the commands of your team members, because they may be aware of facts that you as the exorcist are not For example, they may be able to tell when one demon has slyly left and is now hiding and the new one has taken his place. So your team is going to make you aware of that. Hey, Father, there's been a switch. In addition to all of these things, the exorcist is also doing his own internal praying where he is attentive and listening to whatever the Holy Spirit might be telling him internally. This is called using his discernment. He's got all of his ears, so to speak, pointed at God, and he's listening to what God might be instructing him.
0: Now, many times, Father has mentioned, quote, lower-level and higher-level demons. This got me wondering about the suggested demonic hierarchy. We know there is an angelic hierarchy, but what about their diabolical counterparts?
1: You have demons that you can definitely tell they're a low-ranking demon, a peon. There's not always multiple demons, but where there are, you can bet that the first one to come out is not the boss, because the main possessing demon protects himself by inviting other demons in, and he brings them in through establishing greater covenants with the victim by opening more doors, if you will. And then when there is the confrontation with the priest, the lower ranking ones, the foot soldiers, those are the ones that are sent out first. An exorcist can approach that two ways. He can immediately ask for the boss. But oftentimes, for at least the first foot soldier, I will choose to interact with him to kind of get a feel of what's going on here. The low-level ones often have a great chip on their shoulder. They're on the bottom of the totem pole. They're taking orders. And probably their entire existence consists of just that, constantly taking orders. But you have to remember, a demon by nature is proud and resents that. So even though he's part of this demonic network united against God, and they're just preying upon this victim like parasites without any mercy, they resent each other. I will often access that resentment, and occasionally I get him to give up information that he ordinarily would not. And usually if he does, a higher-ranking demon will snatch him out and will manifest himself. When you have a higher ranking demon, he typically displays less pride than a lower-ranking demon. And He's less anxious to establish his authority. He possesses authority, and he knows that he does. When I've handled enough lower-ranking demons, I've managed to extract some information, but I've kind of just had enough. Then as a new demon comes out, all right, I want your boss. I don't want to talk with you. Lord, I ask you to bring out the main possessor, or at least the demon that you want me to deal with now and there will be a new demon that always comes out at that point. This is one where there's going to be a lot more resistance exhibited by him and a lot less showboating. There are typically less displays of power. The lower ranking demons are the ones that are, in my experience, very glad to display their power because they want to make themselves out to be important. When in fact, even in the demonic kingdom, They're not very important. They're a kind of a stopgap.
0: Speaking of hierarchies, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break to hear from our superiors. We'll be right back. Hello, Exorcist Files listeners. If you're not having good ranchers deliver meat straight to your door, I don't know why you're resisting. Okay, some real talk. This company is actually pretty cool. Their founder, Ben, is actually a former worship pastor, and he felt God called him to start a meat company, and he had literally no experience in food. He just stepped out in faith, trying to be obedient, and a year later, they were absolutely crushing it, providing sustainable, all-natural products sourced only from American farms and ranchers. I mean, the fruit speaks for itself, except they don't sell fruit. They sell amazing, high-quality meat that you can actually taste the difference. And if you want some seafood for Lent, just saying, they do great seafood. Go to goodranchers.com and use promo code Xfiles. That's E X files, Xfiles for a delicious discount, 10% off. Seriously, go check it out. Welcome back to The Exorcist Files. We were just getting into the trenches of demonic hierarchies. Father had more to say about how he handles the constant shifting from one demon to another. As we learned, the main possessing demon will attempt to hide behind a multitude of barriers because they know, as the scripture says, their time is short. But his Father says, Sorry demons, no late checkouts. Prayer is poison
1: to a demon. You're using prayer in order to weaken his hold to get him to surrender information and then ultimately to cast him out. So in the course of his receiving that punishment, one of the things he's going to try to do is, unbeknownst to you, he's going to summon another demon and have that demon take his place. Now you're fighting a brand new demon, one who's fresh. So now you're wasting your energy, so to speak, because you can't take advantage of the weakness in the demon that has just switched out. How you become aware of that, typically, you have to consider that every demon has a personality, just like humans do. They reveal themselves in the way that they animate this particular body. So there'll be contortion within the muscles in a particular way. And so that's your clue. That's the biggest clue. Okay, there's a change here. This is a new demon. He may speak differently, and he's going to try to sound and act like the first demon so that you won't know that there's been a switch. It's to their advantage. But when you perceive it, then you want to say, no, no, no. I didn't give permission for that first demon to leave. God Almighty, I ask that you bring that first demon, and you typically name him if you know his name, bring him back now and get rid of this second demon. And then you can continue where it leaves off. It's important as an exorcist that you only allow a demon to leave when you want that to happen. By leave, what I mean is leave the sphere of the attention because then he's out of the
0: immediate strike range of your prayers. While we've established that demons are prone to verbal abuse, they are also known to get violent from time to time. Sticks and stones, as they say.
1: Demons show brief, fleeting exhibits of power as God permits it. You can encounter violence at any step of the way, but the ones that are gratuitously violent, in my experience, they are the ones that are the lower-ranking demons. One time I was assisting another exorcist, and the exorcist was not a light man. All of a sudden, I look and the victim has picked up the exorcist by his throat and is holding him about 18 inches off the floor. His feet were fluttering as if he was nothing. I've seen people be elbowed and a wound opens up in the side of their head. I was at one session where one of the assistants on the team was a deacon He was a big man, well over six feet tall and 280 pounds. And the victim, this was a woman who is nowhere near the statue and the natural strength of this man. She tucked her arm underneath his arm and just flipped him. He did a complete flip through the air and was thrown some 10 feet in front of her. Then she pointed at a light switch on the wall. And I saw one of the screws came flying through the air into her right hand, and she drove it into her left forearm. We never saw that screw again. That's a power that a demon has. How is it that they have that? I couldn't begin to tell you. I myself was hit in the face so hard that my sinuses were crushed, and I had to have two surgeries in order to repair the damage. The victim was sitting at a table, being held by the holders, one on each arm and one holding the legs. As I was putting down one relic and I was grabbing another relic, my head came down even with the level of the head of the victim 15 inches away. That was all the demon needed. And he just thrashed his head back and hit me just beneath my right eye and up against the bridge of my nose with such a force that it just sent me flying. The bones inside and the cartilage were so damaged that I had a perpetual infection until that second surgery freed me of that. It was as close to a knockout punch that I've ever received. I was seeing stars, quite frankly. I just wanted to go home and lie down, but everybody on the team there had volunteered their time and the victim was there too. So I continued with that exorcism session, but I I became aware from that moment that I need to be cautious and very alert of where I am physically in relation to the demon.
0: Now, as we make our final descent, we are going to dip our toes into the water of a significant theological doctrine. While we often point out doctrinal differences that exist between the Catholic and Protestant faiths, perhaps one of the most well-known differences is the notion of transubstantiation and the Eucharist. For Catholics, the Eucharist is the ultimate act of intimacy with Christ. The bread and the wine during
1: Mass are changed into the body and blood of Christ. The Eucharist is the real presence of Jesus Christ substantially, not symbolically, but substantially in the body and blood that is consecrated at Mass. Which Christ says in John chapter 6, he says this, What's the exact so he says, Fago and trago, unless you gnaw my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be saved. He actually emphasizes it. He uses the verb of an animal eating. And then they turn to him and, and they say, Look, okay, what is he talking about? I'm out of here. That's it. This is crazy. He's asking us to be cannibals. And so a bunch of his disciples leave. This is absurd. Who can follow this? And he lets them leave. Now, if the Eucharist is merely a symbol, he would have been morally obliged to reach out to those people and say, hey, no, hang on, I don't mean this literally.
0: I mean this symbolically. No, he lets them leave. Thank you again for joining us, folks. As we teased last week, we are approaching our final case file, which will take the form of a rare three-parter. Let's just say after this one, you'll have trouble deciding which one was your favorite. While this episode didn't have any 3D binaural drama, it still takes a lot of work. And for that, we want to thank this episode's script doctor and lead editor, Christian Vermilia. Welcome to the world of spiritual warfare, Kristen. All right, everyone. Y'all take care, and we will see you next episode. The Exorcist Files is a production of iHeartMedia.